On this podcast, we talk about violent crime that's not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Reform Podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Dudick, and I'm here with my co-host, Angela Jacobs. Hello. We're talking with you about the Salem witch trials this season, including some of the laws in place at that time. We're also going to explore some of the witch trials going on today. So let's go back in time, about 400 years. On May 27th, 1692, by then there had been weeks of informal hearing of people accused of witchcraft, and then that led to their imprisonment. Massachusetts Bay Colony Governor William Phipps ordered the court of Oyer and Terminer to officially convene. So we talked about that court in the last episode and, and what it looked like. So the governor convened it. I'm sure it wasn't political at all, don't you think? Not at all. Isn't everything? <laughs> right. Well, do you remember, so last time we talked about who presided over the court. The person who would probably be the chief justice, he was the presiding person, was William Stoughton. Well, what we didn't talk about last time, which I realized, is that he was also the lieutenant governor for the colony. So not only was he sitting as a judge at this court, but he was the lieutenant governor. So it makes it look even more like politics might have been influencing how this thing proceeded. I'm going to tell you about the, uh, the court proceedings, what happened, and feel free to chime in at any point in time because this is truly appalling how far... We've come from how terrible things used to be. Nothing is perfect now, but I mean, you read through this and all you can think of is, wow, we're nothing like it used to be. So now we have innocent until proven guilty. And that's how our court cases are handled. They're, they're supposed to be handled like that today. Well, that wasn't how they were conducted during the Salem witch trials. Instead, according to this article, the Salem witch trials, a legal bibliography, and this is from October 29th, 2012 by Lionette Louis Jacques. I might have butchered that name, but I tried my best. If you made it to trial, you were presumed to be guilty. Because remember, we have people investigating this, and then those two same people are now sitting as judges. So you already have that cross-contamination, and these people are presumed to be guilty. So if you were imprisoned already, you also had to pay for your stay there. So it would be like the police judging the investigation that they've already conducted. Right. And you don't get to go to court and be innocent until proven guilty. You are just guilty. And then if you can prove your innocence somehow, you might be let out. And somehow jail is a extended stay facility. Like I get to pay for it. It's a Marriott. <laughs> Not a very good Marriott. Right. Paid on Marriott. We think you're great. <laughs> It's a lot better than jail. A lot better than jail. Yeah. So according, but if you're paying for your own, that's what I'm saying. You're paying for you're paying to be jailed. Is that well? And you don't want to be there, so you're forced. Oh. And many of the people who were there, well, not many of them. It started off that they were on the fringes of society, so it's not like they had money to pay for this anyway. One of them was a beggar. Yeah. I so, just think it's interesting that you get to pay for your own jail. Yeah. Well, even today, there's issues. I mean, when I was in the legislature, we dealt with, because I was on the budget committee for the, the prison, and there's a work program in there where people can gain skills. They also have a very, very low wage that they're paid. And there's always been an issue about free labor. And 
there's a long history about how like with jail work now it's just an extension of the slavery system and it's actually well beyond this podcast but it's it's an interesting thing to look at according to the article the Salem Witch Trials, a legal bibliography, the law applied at the Salem Witch Trials was a mixture of colonial statutes and biblical passages. So it quoted, the law quoted biblical passages from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. So let me tell you what one of the statutes said. Here's the law. Okay, imagine this being the law today. You're a city attorney. Imagine if this was a law that you are going to enforce. It's a law against witchcraft since 1641, and this stated, If any man or woman be a witch that is hath, that is hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. And it incorporated Exodus in the Bible that states, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And then the punishment is taken from Leviticus that states that witches and, wizard, witches and wizards shall surely be put to death they shall stone them with stones, their blood shall be upon them. And one of the people was actually crushed to death with stones because he refused to enter a guilty or not guilty plea. Interesting. So you wonder what the Bible defined as a witch. Does it have a definition section? <laughs> most laws do. Most law books do. Most laws do. That's that nice definition section. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I honestly don't know how much the Bible talks about witches, but you can really make it mean whatever you want. Well, and again, if you're not defining what is a witch, I mean, it's it's open to loose interpretation. Well, and whoever wants to interpret it. Yeah. Yep. And now let's talk about evidence. So you have charges when somebody's brought to a criminal prosecution now. Or in this case, they had charges against some of witchcraft. Let's talk about the evidence they used. Have you heard about the evidence they used at all? I haven't, nor have I heard that they used any rules of evidence. I mean, hearsay for sure. So, yeah. So for people, primarily hearsay? Well, so for people who are listening, tell them what hearsay is. Hearsay is a statement that you um, heard from someone else, but you get to tell the court. But there's absolutely no um, instances of reliability of it. You, you, so hearsay is prohibited in the court because if it's not the person saying the statement, speaking to the court, then it's like, it's basically the telephone game. It goes from this person to this person, to this person, to this person. We used to play that game when we were like third grade. And by the time you got to the end of the circle, the story was completely different than yeah. when it started out. Well, I think that, I don't know that these stories were different. I think they were intentionally done this way. So there were three main types of evidence used in the witchcraft trials. These were a confession. So, you know, that's something that's allowed now. If you have a confession, you confess to something, you have to look at the circumstances of the confession. Can't but it, has to be, it has to be voluntary and you have to be, you have to be informed of the circumstances of your confession and the results of your confession. So there's confessions that, I mean, a confession is a confession. Even today, you know, we get confessions all the time that aren't voluntary. They're just people wanting to get out of trouble. Right. That, that aren't true. People will sometimes say things that aren't true because they want to get out of trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, so the second type of evidence is that you could have eyewitness testimony to acts of witchcraft if there were two witnesses providing the same eyewitness testimony. So you have two people 
saying that, yes, I saw her levitating over the house and, you know, burning a dog. That's a horrid, that's a horrid thing to think about, actually. <laughs> I love dogs. Um, anyway, so, I mean, if you have two people saying it, they're trying to say, like, there's power in numbers. And so even though, you know, it may sound unbelievable, since two people say it, we're going to say it's true. Uh, that hasn't happened ever, has it? <laughs> I know. The third one, now this is the best because this is just so interesting, is spectral evidence. Mm -hmm. So they allowed spectral evidence. And this was evidence when the afflicted girls, because it was mainly them, although not, not specifically, they weren't the only ones, but it was mainly them. They would somehow interact with an unseen attacker. And this was supposed to be the witches attacking them, you know, using their familiars and whatever else is invisible to attack them. This kind of spectral evidence, basically evidence of something you can't see, was allowed. So what kind of evidence would that be physically, though? Okay, so let's get into that, because this is awesome in a horrible way. That this actually allowed, was allowed to happen and led to people's deaths. It's really terrible. Nobody could see this spectral evidence, but it was some of the most damning evidence at these trials. So the spectral evidence would be claims by the victims that they're being bitten, pinched, forced into contortions by the specters of the accused witches, and that Satan was doing his evil works through them. So basically, when those people are saying, oh, somebody's biting me, somebody's pinching me, and they do those yoga contortions trying to show that they are being harassed by a specter, that's what the spectral evidence was. So there's no physical evidence. There's no bruises. There's no broken bones. There's... No. There was nothing. But supposedly, if spectral evidence was used, uh, one historian said it was not used alone to convict someone, but that the spectral evidence had to be corroborated by other forms of evidence. So that leads to the question, right? What is the other forms of evidence? Circumstantial evidence, right? Oh, God, let me tell you about this evidence, Angie. It is so crazy that this was allowed in our courts, but I guess we all had to start somewhere, you know, as far as, you know, we've come far as a country and as hopefully in most of the world, but this is terrible. So the courts allowed causal relationship evidence. And so this causal relationship evidence was supposed to somehow prove that the person accused of witchcraft did indeed control or possess or harm an afflicted girl. Some of the factors that counted as evidence showing witchcraft would be bad acts by the accused, having greater than average strength, so don't work out because you might have strength that will make you look like a witch, having had prior conflicts. I'm pretty sure all this is precluded by the rules of evidence. Right. The modern, the modern rules of evidence doesn't allow any of this because mm -hmm. it basically allows you to dredge up everything you ever hated about someone and call them a witch. Mm -hmm. So having had prior conflicts, having materials that were used in spells, which I'm guessing is a bunch of herbs, maybe some candles. So if you have these things, you are a witch. Might need to get rid of my herb jar. <laughs> right. The entire cabinet right here. That's right. Don't you Rosemary, you're gone. <laughs> Rosemary's beast. You're on deck. I have to get rid of my dill garden outside. Yeah. And then the last thing was having a witch's mark. I think that that was pretty loosely defined. But when a woman was accused of witchcraft, 
that person's physical body, she would be examined by what was called a jury of her peers. So basically you get some other woman to look head to toe over this accused woman. So they were basically moles or birthmarks. Oh yeah. Or, or who knows, maybe you scratched yourself or maybe, you know, you have a, a, a cat. Maybe you have really do have a cat that scratched you or something or, you know, who knows? So they were physically examined and it, these marks were supposed to show that the witch's familiar had bitten them or had fed off of them somehow. Think of like a vampire, but you're, I guess if you're familiar as a cat, it would be a cat vampire. If you watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they're the bunny vampires, the little bunny rabbits. Rabbits, rabbits. So that would be that in Monty Python and the Holy Grail would be evidence of a familiar and a witch. Wow. Yeah. Now there was also this thing called the touching test. I know it sounds dirty. It does. Um, it does. This occurred when one of the afflicted girls was having a fit, but somehow her fit would magically end when she touched the person accused of witchcraft. The magic huh. touch made her fit end. Yeah. So that was the touching test. And then if you really wanted to prove you're not a witch, there was one, there really was one surefire way to do this that hopefully would show everyone you're not a witch. If you were able to recite the Lord's prayer, then you were not a witch because at the time it was widely believed that a witch could not reside the, could not recite the Lord's prayer. You know, it's, it's easy to joke about this, but I have to tell you, I was really just sad thinking about that people actually lived their lives and went along with this. I mean, we still see witch hunts today over different things, but some of these people truly believed this. I think it's a, um, it's a think mentality, right? I mean, there's probably people that didn't believe it and think it, but it's, it's a lemur mentality. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's always going to be present when people congregate and life yeah so the other thing it's, oh, it's, it's easy to point the finger at people when you don't want the finger pointed at yourself and that is exactly what we we saw here so you had to defend yourself you did not receive a court-appointed attorney or anyone to help you picture the courtroom you've been in jail because you've been arrested for being a witch and then you come to court to defend yourself by yourself You've been in jail, you probably stink, you probably haven't been eating well, you probably are feeling rather terrible. So you go to the stand and you're testifying and the people accusing you, especially the afflicted girls, they sit in the audience and they whimper and they writhe and they babble and they say that that is all proof that they're being attacked by a demonic presence and that you're the one behind it. That's what these people are facing. And when they, when we, we talked about confessions earlier and you know, and how they could sometimes be forced, well, torture was permitted at this time. I mean, I don't know that it, I didn't look into what it really said, but it was not, not allowed. So it, the torture was permitted at this time to gain a confession, but a confession obtained through torture wasn't allowed to be used as evidence unless the person who was accused in tortures and tortured then reaffirms their confession after the torture is done. So you can torture it out of them, but if you want to use it, they have to keep saying they're guilty. Wow. It's it's horrible. And unfortunately, what they saw is the torture 
if you did recant, then they would just begin torturing you again until you quit recanting. So it was a horrid cycle where these people were tortured. If you were accused and you confessed, this is what you said earlier, if you confessed, named other witches, then you would probably be spared severe punishment. Um, and the Puritans justified this because they said that God's wrath and punishment was final, so the accused would be punished by God, and I guess the court didn't have to do it. Which doesn't really make sense to me if you believe along that line, because if you believe God's going to punish, God would punish you whether you confess in court or not. Why bother punishing anyone? Right. Why bother? Yeah. So it's pretty sad. If you insisted on your innocence, you faced a much, much harsher fate. And unfortunately, again, as you said, the people in the community who may not have agreed with the witch trials, they were afraid to say anything because then they themselves could be accused and convicted of witchcraft. So it's that, you know, it's that thing, don't take me, take somebody else. But pretty soon there's nobody else left to take. Yeah, or just, or just stifle it, right? Like, don't let them come after me. Mm -hmm. Right. I'll just go along to get along and so I won't be attacked. We painted a picture what the trials look like. They're ugly. Now, let's talk about what happened to those on trial. The first trial occurred on June 2nd, 1692 for Bridget Bishop. She was the first one accused who had been put on trial and then convicted. But really interesting, this wasn't the first time she was accused of witchcraft. So I don't, it, 12 years earlier, she had been accused, but I don't know what happened. So she was accused 12 years earlier, but she'd been found innocent. Unfortunately, this time she was convicted and then sentenced to death. And if someone was to be executed, they weren't burned at the stake. And that's kind of a popular thought, but in Salem, they were hanged. All except for one person who was crushed to death by stones. So on June 10th, just speedy, I mean, this is a speedy execution. She had her trial June 2nd and she was publicly hanged on June 10th at a place called Proctor's Ledge, which would later become known as Gallows Hill in Salem Village. And that was where the people were hanged. Her death started the killings of the people accused of witchcraft. And there were four separate execution dates when people were executed. The next one was about a month later the hangings that occurred then were on July 19th, and five more accused people were hanged. According to Remembering the Victims of the Salem Witch Executions by Meredith Worthen on September 21st, 2017 on Biography.com, their names were Sarah Good, which is somebody we already talked about. She was one of our Sarahs. Rebecca Nurse, who we also talked about. Um, a woman named Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds. They were all executed. So at this point, that is six people. And Sarah Good, gotta love her, when she was convicted, she responded by saying that she was no more a witch than the judge was a wizard. But of course, that didn't stop anyone and they, they killed her anyway. The third date of executions was on April 19th, 1692, and five more people were hanged. This time it was just one woman, Martha Carrier, and four men. And these men were John Willard, the Reverend George Burroughs, George Jacob Sr., and John Proctor. One of those men, George Burroughs, had actually previously been the minister in Salem Village from 1680 to 1683. And then he moved to Maine to get away from Salem Village. And um, they brought him down from Maine and made him go to trial. And he was accused of being the ringleader of the witches. When he stood on the gallows to be hanged, 
he did something that supposedly a witch wasn't able to do, and he recited the Lord's Prayer perfectly. So it's not really a surprise since he was a, he was a minister, but suddenly some people had doubts as to his guilt because he did something that witches weren't supposed to be able to do. But of course, any doubt was explained away by those who just wanted to kill people. So they ignored it and they just killed him. The fourth execution date was September 22nd when eight more people um, who had been convicted were hanged. And these eight were Mary Eastie, Martha Corey, Anne Pudiator, I think looks, looks like what it is, Samuel Wardell, Mary Parker, Alice Parker, they're probably related, Wilmot Red, and Margaret Scott. So those were all the ones that were hanged. One other person was killed. It was 71-year-old Giles Corey, who was married to Martha Corey, one of those who was hanged on September 22nd. But he and his 71-year-old, I'm not going to deal with this stuff, refused to enter a guilty or innocent plea. And because of that refusal, he died a horrid death and was pressed to death with heavy stones. His death did not occur automatically. It took place over two days when he was pressed to death by the stones before he died. So the witch hunt started in Salem, but it spread around to neighboring towns like places like Amesbury, Andover, Salisbury, Topsfield, Ipswich, Charlestown, and Boston. And people who didn't live in Salem, like George Burroughs, the previous minister, were brought to Salem and put on trial. Uh, that fire that started in Salem spread, and some of the people originally involved, like Thomas Putnam, kept feeding that fire. We talked about him before. He's thought to have had great influence over the Salem witch trials. Not only did his family help start things out, but he himself turned into an accuser and a witness in the trials. He accused and testified against 43 people, and his daughter Anne was actually farther ahead than that and testified against 62. And we talked about before how land disputes and other problems may have been a driver as to who was accused and convicted. And that is true. Uh, many historians, including Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum, think that the Putnam family used the witchcraft hysteria as a method to exact revenge against neighboring rivals and enemies, basically people they didn't like. So, so is that where the term witch, <laughs> witch hunt comes from? Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, find someone you don't like and figure out how to take them down. And like any good narcissist, I like that phrase. Like any good narcissist, like any good narcissist. He tried to manipulate people. Uh, he wrote a letter on April twenty first, sixteen ninety two. So before the actual hangings, but after the stuff had all started, thanking the two magistrates. So he was kissing up to them, John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin, and those two also ended up being the trial judges. He and his sucking up thanked them for their wonderful participation in the witch trials and investigation. And wanting to keep his finger in the pot, he offered to assist them in any way they needed. He was acting like he was just being helpful, but more likely trying to manipulate the result he wanted to see. And you might also remember we talked about Samuel Paris. He was the minister who helped start the witch frenzy and had Tituba as an enslaved woman. He was so concerned about what he was seeing that he sent his daughter, Betty, moved her out of Salem Village and moved her to Salem Town so she wouldn't have to continue to be involved in the trials. He was probably concerned she was going to be accused of being a witch. And so he didn't like what he had started, so he just shipped her away to protect her. Witness protection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the earliest version of witness protection. <laughs> That's sad but true. 
And after Betty was gone, Anne and Abigail, they started being the most outspoken accusers of the afflicted girls group. And I already told you that, you know, Anne had accused 62 people. So that's what the witch that the trials look like. Uh, next time we can talk more about what the fallout was, what happened in pardoning some of these people. And then what happened when uh, certain people's wives were accused, how suddenly they put an end to that special court and they didn't want to have spectral evidence anymore. So when it gets personal, suddenly things change. So that's where we're going to end things today. Thank you for joining us. If you want to reach us, please send an email to thereformpod at gmail.com. We want to thank and recognize our sources and their work. A full list of links will be available at our website, The Reform Podcast. If you're really feeling the witch spirit by now, we have some awesome cups that are available on our website. They say always be a witch or a bitch. If you want one, they're great cups. I will probably quit selling them after Halloween. And before we go, if you want to support the work we're doing, it's been interesting. We reached out to see if people could provide stories about how they're connected to the witch trials or how they're connected to all of this. I've gotten quite a bit of, of people sending us information and we'll be reading some of those stories on the podcast as we get closer to Halloween. Um, it's kind of interesting to see how many people have been touched by this. So please rate, review, and subscribe if you like this. Uh, on whatever platform you use, your voice really matters. This Reform podcast is written, researched, and recorded and produced by me, Kimberly Dudick. You can follow us and stay up to date at Instagram at The Reform Podcast, on Facebook at The Reform Podcast, and on Twitter at The Reform Pod. Our theme song is Be Mine, which is truly one of my favorite songs, by the Missoula, Montana musician Tom Catmull. I saw him perform it live in the Union Club. And then I got to know him when I was during one of my campaigns. It turns out he's good friends with a friend of mine. They used to play music together. And I asked him if we could use this song for the podcast. And he graciously said yes. We are making this show on and around the traditional lands of the Salish, Pondere, Kootenai, Shoshone, Blackfeet, Chinook, and Multnomah peoples, and many other Native tribes. With deep respect, we acknowledge the Indigenous people of the West and throughout the U.S., throughout the world. Wherever you are, thank you for listening, and until next time, keep searching for justice. Darling, when the door locked in my little finger Walked hand in hand And that was just the sound of a word or a sticker My thumb against some wood or something I, I got nothing planned And when the room is quiet It's either one of two religions Joyful noise or a wide open space The letter pulls you short from a crowded room With your pocketbook in your heart and your mind out of place Be mine Be mine Be mine Be Start it out.
that is innocent is hearing lovers kiss in darkened taverns while mining your home. But when your ears fill twice with chance encounters a charming third, and you'll someday find it stained to your bones. It is particular about company, and it sparks the flame of jealousy in those you hold close. And it has no fear of poverty, the bottle or solace. You see, you are what it needs most. Be mine. Be mine.